0: I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
1: Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Boza and John Ford. Today, put a pin in it, a leadership change at Pinterest. Investors applauding that decision at first, but shares are off of the highs. Is now the time to buy or is there a greater issue with the business model? Plus, could TikTok really be banned from US app stores? One member of the FCC asking Google and Apple to do just that. Commissioner Brendan Carr is gonna be with us in just a few moments. And then finally, a big call on the internet sector. JP Morgan slashing targets for 26 names. We're going to tell you which ones they think still have the most upside, Deep.
0: First up, Carl, let's turn to a big short in the cloud investor, Jim Chanos. He is targeting data center REITs like digital, realty, trust and Equinix. This as the industry next industry, he says, to fall. Now, these are the funds that own the physical data centers, the giant warehouses where technology companies actually store the cloud data. Chenos telling the Financial Times that, quote, the story is that although the cloud is growing, the cloud is their enemy, not their business. Value is accruing to those cloud companies and not the brick and mortar legacy data centers. Their three biggest customers, he says, are becoming their biggest competitors. Those customers, of course, the cloud giants, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, which Chenos calls three of the most vicious competitors in the world. Guys, we've already seen as much from Alphabet. Earlier this year, it announced that it was going to invest nearly $10 billion in office space and data centers. And even in that announcement from CEO Sundar Pichai, he alluded to the idea that he wanted to do it himself. He wanted green building design. So it's a very interesting short because it's not all secular growth of the cloud. There's going to be winners and losers here, John.
2: Yeah, it's a dangerous call, though. And and here's why. It's because there's more to the cloud than just the public cloud. There's hybrid as well. And the um, existing data center providers that are going to do a good job at adapting to that, at using uh, bridges, VMware technologies, Red Hat technologies, et cetera, to bridge into the public cloud might just be absolutely fine. There really is demand, Carl, for these digital resources in general. And yes, there are some traditional players that are gonna be caught flat footed, but there are others that are gonna be in demand as customers need more than public cloud services. And if you bet on the wrong ones
1: in the wrong regions to short, you could be left short. (laughs) And <laughs> it's uh, uh, – Chinos, as you said, will have to be nimble, although D. He does point out in the article that this short is just one of a menu of shorts that, in his words, they're going to be feasting on uh, for a number of years, kind of like they did in the post-dot-com uh, bust years.
0: It is a fascinating article. You really have to read to the end to sort of understand the state of short selling. Right. A few years ago, it was attack on the short sellers and short squeezes. But Chanos is really having a moment. Carl, you alluded to some of the ones that have turned out well so far. Coinbase being one of them. Carvana, another. He says it's a short seller's market. So what a change from, what, just over a year ago. Our next guest agrees that it is a fertile market for short sellers. But and even his firm has some skin in the game, having invested in 21 Vionet, now VNet Group. That's Microsoft's exclusive data center partner in China. Joining us now, GGV Capital Managing Partner, Jeff Richards. Jeff, it's great to have you back. Um, so two very interesting topics. Where should we start? Let's start on the data center side. Um, do you agree with that short that these data center REITs could be in trouble?
3: Well, Deidre, I, I would tend to agree more with what John just said. I, I think it's a very dangerous short because you're betting against a long-term trend. Uh, as you know, we're long-term investors. We, we don't trade in and out of the market on any given day. We're making bets on companies for five to 10-year windows. I think the thing that folks who are short the data center market and the cloud overall uh, perhaps miss is how complex the technology architectures are that are run by these companies. I mean, if you look at a you know, at Goldman Sachs, thirty percent of its employees now are developers. You look at Domino's Pizza; it's been one of the best-performing stocks of the last decade. Why? It's all been a bet on technology. They run on multiple clouds. They run on Azure. They run on AWS. They run Snowflake. They run Atlassian. They run Adobe. You know, these companies that have billion-dollar-plus IT budgets are running, in some cases, thousands of applications to build out their architecture and their infrastructure. And much of that sits in public cloud, some of it sits in private cloud, it sits in data centers. They're not just gonna wholesale move away from data centers uh, to ru- to run everything in the cloud. Uh, I think what you'll see is a lot of failover and redundancy for the next decade, and that benefits all of the cloud players as, as more technology and more businesses bet on technology for their business.
0: Yeah, those are fair points, Jeff. Um, but I remember this was a few years ago, Dropbox building its own cloud infrastructure to sort of give themselves better margins At the time, we thought maybe more companies would be doing that, but we haven't seen that taken off. What's the reason behind that, do you think? And do you think that, as Chano said, those three players are just so big, and he calls them vicious competitors, that they could be taking up a lot of the air in the room?
3: It's a great question, and a a lot of folks did think that that may be a trend. We haven't seen that. Uh, And I think for two reasons, I'd say one in Dropbox, you had a company with a very technical, strong technical founding team and Drew Houston and the rest of the organization uh, that was was very well capitalized and could afford to make that bet. Look, building your own cloud infrastructure is expensive. It's the reason folks spend money with GCP and Azure and AWS. It looks cheaper in the short run, in the long run, it could be more expensive. And that was the bet that Drew and his team made, but very few companies can afford to do that. And so these companies grow up, they grow up in the cloud, they grow up and running in the public cloud. And what we've also seen over time is is Amazon and Microsoft and Google do a very good job of bundling in uh, some of the core basic tools and technologies that you'd otherwise have to go purchase from from other vendors. So I I just don't see a scenario where folks move wholeheartedly away from the public cloud, but I also don't see a scenario where large organizations, Fortune 1000 organizations who can't afford any downtime. And let's remember running an e-commerce website, running any type of business, whether it's your supply chain, et cetera, in the cloud, you can't afford five minutes of downtime. You truly need, uh, you know, 100% uptime, and you just can't do that with one bet on public cloud, and you can't do it with one bet on private cloud either.
2: Jeff, I'm so glad that we've got you talking about this because, I mean, it comes down to, in part, this love-hate relationship I have with the term cloud. It sort of doesn't mean anything anymore. (laughs) We use it to talk about enterprise software, then we use it to talk about distributed infrastructure. When it comes down to it, right, uh, Dell's Uh, infrastructure business has not evaporated. HP's has not evaporated. If it were all just about the public cloud providers, those businesses would be absolutely gone. And so it's dangerous to think that because public cloud good, Therefore, you know, uh, these these REITs and, and other are, are all bad. And I'm not sure we're getting the level of granularity and in information about their operations to understand the technology they're investing in and understanding which of those are building the bridges to the public clouds that are going to allow them to be most successful. And that's what investors need to know, isn't it?
3: Spot on, John. And if you go, anytime we make an investment, we spend a ton of time diligencing, talking to CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, trying to understand the tech stack of of some of our larger portfolio companies and public companies. There are some excellent tools on the web. There's Built With, there's G2 Crowd. There are a number of tools that can tell you What are in those tech stacks and it's mind-boggling. I mean, thousands of software applications and tools, redundant infrastructure, folks have failover all over the world to serve different types of customers. Obviously, you're dealing with different regulatory environments around the world in terms of data privacy issues and things like that. So, it's an extremely complex universe. It's not getting a lot less complex, particularly as cybersecurity becomes more and more important, That's a bet that investors have made a lot of money with, with companies like Palo Alto Networks. uh, And there are a number of great private companies coming up like Orca and others. So we just I, I don't see the level of complexity going down. And to your point, it's a very gray area, public, private. Look at look at look at Accenture, Deloitte, the folks that build a lot of these infrastructure platforms for large Fortune 1000 enterprises. Their businesses haven't suffered at all. Right. In a do it yourself cloud era. Um, they haven't suffered at all. Their businesses are booming. And in many cases, what those folks folks at those firms are telling me, they've got three to five-year backlogs of cloud infrastructure build-out that they're doing for Fortune 1000 companies. So Jim may be right in the short term, and obviously he's a a short seller. I'm not. We never have been. We never will be. Um, But in the long run, man, you are betting against a tidal wave of a tailwind.
0: Jeff, uh, a great discussion. I think we could have gone longer with this, but it's great to have you on a day like today. Jeff Richards, thank you. We'll talk to you again soon.
3: Thanks all.
1: Let's turn to TikTok this morning. The FCC Commissioner, Brendan Carr, calling on Apple and Google to remove the platform from their app stores, tweeting this morning that the video app, quote, harvests swaths of sensitive data that new reports show are being accessed in Beijing. FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr joins us this morning. Mr. Commissioner, it's great to have you. Thanks for the time.
4: Good to be with you thanks
1: you talk about uh, collecting searching histories browsing histories biometrics metadata i guess the, the first question is what do you suspect that information is being used for
4: yeah well most people look at TikTok and they say well what's the big deal it's just uh, another uh, viral video sharing app and that's just the sheep's clothing as you walk through it is a sophisticated tool for harvesting this data and one thing that we do know is that right now the ccp is running one of the most you know, widespread uh, data gathering operations out there. And TikTok has repeatedly said, don't worry, your data is stored in the U.S. What we've come to find out through some of this investigative reporting and leaked documents is, in fact, according to TikTok employees, everything is seen in China. And so while I think that's a national security issue, it's also an issue when it comes to just applying the plain terms of the Google and Apple app stores, which say you have to be clear about who's accessing the data, why are they accessing the data. It has to be only used to improve the service. And it strikes me that a plain application of that, in light of this pattern of misrepresentations about data, should result in booting them from the app stores.
1: Uh, you've asked for a response uh, by July 8. And I, I wonder, have you heard anything from either either company yet? And what about the rest of the, uh, the, the FCC? What, what do other commissioners say?
4: Yeah, the FCC's been really good and bipartisan when it comes to addressing threats from CCP. We've done it from Huawei. We've done it from ZTE. I haven't heard so far from uh, Apple or Google on this. They still have time. But I saw TikTok had a spokesperson that said, well, of course, uh, some data goes back to employees in Beijing. But don't worry, it's on a, quote, need-to-know basis. And I think the, the type of need-to-know determination uh, that an entity in Beijing beholden to the CCP reaches is vastly different than the one that we would reach here in the U.S. In, in such that it's no limit at all. Particularly when you understand how some of the PRC's national intelligence laws operate. Once it is accessed in Beijing, the idea that there's a clawback or way to control or limit access, um, it, it just doesn't make sense.
0: Commissioner Carr, you're going after TikTok. This is a Chinese company that's operating in America. But what about American companies in China, like Apple? Is there a double standard here in response to a 2017 Chinese law? Apple agreed to move its Chinese customers' data to China and onto computers owned and run by a Chinese state-owned company. Isn't that a concern? Should this be broader ranging? Should lawmakers be looking at this?
4: Absolutely. I'm deeply concerned about some of the hypocrisy we see from Silicon Valley companies. Again, these are companies that stand up and say, look, we back uh, human rights, we back privacy, and yet in their dealings uh, with China... We see a lot of double standards in terms of they're continuing to invest. They're continuing to put you know, U.S. user uh, data at risk. And so I do think this should be part and parcel of a broader look at securing uh, U.S. data.
0: And in terms of enforcement, just like, you know, companies, American companies that operate in China, Chinese consumers can get around that through VPNs. Americans can do the same. So if TikTok is taken off the app stores, couldn't they just use VPNs to download it?
4: Conceivably, but look, I think we have to start taking some steps. And what I'm doing here is only, you know, one of hopefully many shoes left to drop when it comes to TikTok. The Biden administration is undergoing a review uh, of all apps, uh, including TikTok. And I would encourage them to move swiftly to a conclusion of that review. And there's bipartisan interest in this. Previously, Senator uh, Schumer and Senator Cotton have been on the letter. Uh, Everyone from, you know, Adam Schiff to Cruz and Blackburn have been on it. So there's bipartisan interest in this, not just from the FCC but also across the, uh, the executive branch. And I hope they do move forward quickly. But in the meantime, this is a, a concrete step that Apple and Google could take.
2: But can they really? Commissioner, uh, parts of this make me pretty uncomfortable. Now, I, I, I don't, I've never used TikTok. I have a problem uh, <laughs> with the connection to China and the exfiltration of data and all of that. But I also am queasy about the idea that regulators are pressuring companies without a specific legal basis and without hearings and that kind of process to shut down access to a particular app or, you know, the operation of a particular company um, based on what we think is going on. It doesn't seem even handed. Uh, Who knows how many other companies would would have to have that same sort of rule apply if we knew what they were doing with their data, uh, if if we were taking the steps probably necessary to protect consumers consistently. I mean, this, this just seems like the wrong sort of process to me, Commissioner.
4: Yeah, I think there's some unique reporting here with particular to the U.S. user data of TikTok. Again, there's that BuzzFeed News article uh, that quoted TikTok officials saying everything is seen in China. So I think that's a challenge. And look, in my letter, I said, let me know by July 8th uh, if I've got some of this wrong. And you tell me, do you disagree that this is a violation of your policy? At at the end of the day, they're the experts in applying their own policies. And I'm happy to hear from them if I've got that wrong or if, yeah, there is a violation of their policies, but they don't think it rises to the level of booting them off the platform. I'm happy to sort of give them that process and hear them out on that.
1: Uh, And to to follow on John's question, would you expect any retribution if, in fact, they agreed with you uh, from the Chinese?
4: Perhaps. But look, I think when we look at the national security threat that TikTok poses, we saw that same uh, dynamic at play with Huawei, with ZTE, with China Mobile. People said, well, if you kick Huawei out, there's going to be, you know, retribution on other sort of U.S.-based telecom actors. But. At the end of the day, uh, there's a cost that comes to having exposure to national security threats, and we got to be willing to step up and, uh, and address them.
0: And finally, right. Commissioner, uh, just so go, go ahead, Dee. Okay, Commissioner, I was just going to ask, maybe you could walk our audience through what you think the actual threat is. What could the Chinese government do with this data that they are collecting?
4: Yeah, all the data that they're getting from the biometric data, which is, you know, face prints to voice prints, some of that can be fed into facial recognition technologies. Again, there were sort of universal understanding of the concern from Huawei and ZTE getting this data and putting it back to Beijing. And here, we actually have, in many ways, more personal, more sensitive data that is going back into, potentially, that CCP operation.
1: Mr. Commissioner, appreciate that. Uh, It's worth, uh, the letter at least is worth uh, reading. Uh, All of our viewers should take a look at it, and I know it's on your Twitter account. We'll see you soon. Uh, Brendan Carr, Thanks us. Thank you. Still to come, why J.P. Morgan argues
2: there's more pain ahead for the Internet sector, plus a very happy birthday to the iPhone. Tech Check is just getting started.
0: Let's get a gut check on some internet stocks feeling the pressure of that slowing macro environment. JPM cutting price targets on 26 companies across their tech coverage. It includes names like Google, Meta, Snap and Twitter. JPM is bracing for a higher likelihood of recession in the next two years, saying all of those companies are at risk of slower consumer spending. On the flip side, they still see the best value in Amazon, Booking.com and Uber, calling them the best ideas in the internet space. John?
2: Yes, and turning to e-commerce, logistics and shipping companies playing a key role in those businesses. Frank Holland spent some time with the CEO of FedEx this morning ahead of the company's Investor Day and has more. Frank?
5: Hey, good morning to you, John. FedEx shares now moving lower after the company released new financial targets through fiscal year 2025 to increase shareholder value. That includes increasing the company's dividend payout. As you mentioned, we spoke to CEO Raj Subramanian earlier today. About the current e-commerce market, he says he doesn't believe Amazon is a direct competitor and says that the investments that FedEx has made in recent years have set up the company to compete with UPS for both large retail and small and medium-sized business customers.
4: We are the critical infrastructure uh, for e-commerce. We have a much more diversified portfolio than our direct competition. And uh, that, you know I think we are well positioned both from a physical point of view and also from a digital infrastructure to succeed in this marketplace.
5: And another major focus for FedEx going forward is the electrification of its delivery fleet. The company has ordered 2,500 delivery EVs from GM BrightDrop for express, express delivery. Still, that would only be a fraction of the fleet, but part of the company's commitment to be carbon neutral by 2040. Company executives say they're planning to work with several different partners for EVs as they fill out their fleet. Supermanian says the company's also keeping an eye on both drone delivery and EVTOL delivery for their operations. But say the real focus here, the issue here is with that is both scale and profitability. Supermanian also telling me he really wants to lean in on FedEx's logistic tech capabilities. They have partnerships currently with Microsoft, Salesforce and Adobe. Carl, back over to you. Uh, fascinating work on an important day
1: for the stock. Uh, Frank, thank you. Frank Holland on FedEx. After the break, a leadership change of Pinterest. We're going to talk to the company's former head of strategy about what it means for the stock that is down 75 percent in the last year as Tech Check continues after this.
0: Good day, everybody. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's what's happening right now. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says the clock is running on the central bank's efforts to control inflation. He was speaking at an ECB conference and Powell acknowledged there's a risk the Fed's efforts will go too far, potentially putting the economy into a recession. But he says he thinks failing to restore price stability poses an even bigger risk. Fed, Bath & Beyond shares have lost a fifth their, their value today after the retailer's quarterly revenue and earnings came in well below Wall Street expectations. The company's replacing CEO Mark Tritton with an independent director stepping into that job temporarily. Tomorrow is the last day of the Supreme Court's term. We're expecting to get an important decision from the court on whether the EPA can regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. Deirdre? Candessa, thank you. Mm -hmm. Pinterest founder and longtime CEO Ben Silberman stepping down effective immediately and announcing a new CEO, Bill Reddy, from Google's commerce business. That stock is down 75% over the last year, though it is, tra- it was trading higher this morning on the announcement, uh, lower now by about 1%. Investors um, perhaps trying to figure out what expected changes are on the horizon under new leadership? It is worth noting that last October there was a report that PayPal was looking to buy Pinterest. So what do payments and social media have in common? Well, now it will be Bill Reddy, who before Google served as COO at PayPal. And he's best known for running Venmo, growing Venmo and Braintree over there. So. The question is, PIN's jumping deeper into commerce now. For more, let's bring in Graycroft's Cameron Ansari, formerly PIN's head of corporate development and strategy. It's great to have you. You know the company well. From what you know of Bill Reddy, is he the right person to take on this job?
6: Absolutely. Actually, I backed Bill uh, when he uh, was at Braintree, uh, and then Braintree ended up buying Venmo, and then we supported uh, a separate deal into Braintree and Venmo. He's a terrific operator, very well-respected uh, has a nose for deals. Uh, he was the really the architect that helped us uh, sell the Braintree vemo business to PayPal. And then at PayPal, you saw them being very inquisitive with Honey and iZettle and other deals. So I think he's gonna have a, a great nose for business, great nose for deals. He's gonna be um, very revenue minded. Uh, and he's an experienced operator between uh, having scaled Braintree, having uh, worked at PayPal and become COO, and then now having run Google Google's commerce business for the past couple of years. I think he's a great fit for the business at, at Pinterest. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Cameron, one of the first things you just said about him is that he has a great nose for deals. Does Pinterest need to do a deal? Of course, there was a speculation about PayPal, but do you think that his strategy will include either doing deals or selling Pinterest?
6: I'm not sure about selling Pinterest, but certainly the company could be more acquisitive. They just bought a company called the Yes, uh, an AI driven shopping platform. Uh, but they've been relatively quiet on the m and a front in the past couple of years. Uh, and of course, now they have both cash and stock to use for deals. and you know valuations have come down, so it may be in a place where they could be acquisitive, or certainly more aggressive on that front because they haven't been. But I think, moreover, I think Bill is going to come in and really try to drive the commerce part of the business, to really try to take the business away from just search and discovery to actually executing on the shopping uh, vision of of what the uh, you know the Pinterest platform could really be. I think that's really kind of his uh, focus, and from PayPal and from Google having run the commerce business, I think that's his background as well.
2: Cameron, here's my question no matter who's running Pinterest in the next phase, Pinterest isn't growing, right? Um, And revenue has slowed way down. And to me, the entire social media thesis is is sort of broken, whether you're looking at Meta or Snap or Twitter or Pinterest, uh, they're all trading about where they were, I don't know, when when Pinterest went public uh, in, in early 2019. So now there's a problem, a challenge with first-party data being particularly important, with attribution being particularly important, with the rules around targeting changing. How can Pinterest both grow and solve those problems in a new way? Isn't that the fundamental issue?
6: So Pinterest growth, I mean, the the company did grow during COVID because of a lot of users that came on the platform to try it. I think those users have faded away in the last kind of 18 months. Um, but they are still growing revenue quite a bit, and they're growing, actually, the bottom line quite a bit. I think the, the company is quite um, profitable and, you know, I think had $77 million of adjusted EBIT that last quarter. And I expect to see that continue because the company is, frankly, pretty high margin. Um, but uh, The question you asked about social, I mean, look, Pinterest is very different than Twitter and Snapchat and some of these other platforms. It's not a one-to-one use case where someone's going to use Snapchat or, or Pinterest. Pinterest is not there for messaging, not there to look at photos of friends and family, not there to look for updates on celebrities. So it's really much more about search and discovery. It's much more akin to what you might do on Google or maybe even on Amazon. And so it's a bit of a different animal than those other companies you mentioned. And frankly, you know, all the stocks in the tech sector are down quite a bit uh, in the last you know, certainly six, nine months. So um, you know, I think the, the question is going to be, can Pinterest grow the top line and the bottom line without necessarily growing users? Because user growth has flatlined at about 430 million or so now globally.
2: Yeah, but, I mean, you mentioned, we talk about revenues, it was up, I think, uh, 18% year-over-year in Q1. And, yeah, I mean, users dropped, I believe monthly active users dropped around 9%. But there's a particular challenge, I think, around the active users in more developed markets, which tend to have higher average revenue per user. So there's a health issue, it seems to me, with the Pinterest user base and exactly what Pinterest is for. Don't they have to work on that as well?
6: Well, so more than 75% of the audience now on Pinterest is outside the U.S. And the company's been very strategic about putting those users in high margin, high ARPU countries, you know, average revenue per user. So they're in Western Europe, they're in Scandinavia, uh, they're in Japan, Brazil. These markets that are pretty developed, ad markets for digital advertising. And the company's only really lit up advertising in most of those markets in the last kind of year, 18 months. So in Japan, they came online, I think, in the last few months. So, you know, I expect to see revenue from their international advertising business grow quite a bit, um, because that's very nascent, even though they have, you know, over 300 million users outside the U.S., again, in, in pretty attractive markets. But the real opportunity, I think, and the reason Bill's there is to find opportunities for them within commerce and shopping and how they're gonna monetize, you know, all those users, be able to actually convert and transact, uh, you know, either on the platform or on third-party sites, but they, you know, bringing the revenue and the attribution back to Pinterest.
1: Uh, Cameron, I, I wonder, I mean, uh... On the macro level, we're, we're looking at bloated inventories in retail, uh, the, a, a growing sense that consumers have enough stuff, uh, a lot of discounting now from Bed Bath and Target, and we'll see what Prime Day does at Amazon. I just wondered, to what degree can they pivot to more travel and services if, in fact, the consumer says, I'm done buying stuff for my house?
6: Well, look, CPG and retail have been the two massive ad categories for Pinterest all along. But the company has worked in the past couple of years to diversify quite a bit into financial services, automotive, pharmaceuticals, travel, healthcare. So I think these are categories for them that are big uh, budget advertising categories. They're the kind of the CBS primetime audience, if you will, uh, you know, th- that sort of audience that's, that's coming to Pinterest. And so they're attracting advertisers in those other spaces that can hopefully offset CPG. But I think you saw in the, even their earnings announcement in April, they said uh, you know, the CPG clients are under pressure in terms of uh, supply chain inflation. Uh, and all the rest. So I think they're, they're going to have some pressure from that sector for sure. And we'll see if they can offset it with the other categories that are growing.
0: Cameron, it's great to have your insights. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Cameron Ansari, Graycroft. Be sure to tune in tonight. Mad Money at 6 p.m. Eastern. Our Jim Cramer is going to sit down with both Ben Silverman and Bill Reddy. That is an interview you will not want to miss. Carl?
1: Uh, meantime, D, another leadership change taking place today outside of tech. Mark Tritton out as CEO of Bed Bath & Beyond. Shares now close to session lows, 20% decline today. Uh, after a multi-year push to revive Bed Bath's brand and online sales, stocks down more than 40% below its all four, 2014 all-time high, down 60% since Tritton took over in 2019. We'll be right back.
2: Back. Earlier this morning, I spoke with NASDAQ CEO Adina Friedman here at NASDAQ's Technology of the Future Conference about the way markets have functioned during recent turbulence.
7: Certainly, the markets are volatile. Investors are, I would say, maybe confused to say the least, but certainly in a risk off mode. Um, and volumes are very high because of the fact you've got this confluence of opinions in the markets where there isn't a clear direction. And as a result, you have a lot of different opinions coming in creating a lot of volume, a lot of volatility. But the markets themselves as operators, I think that you know, we all know we've, we've had to deal with levels of volatility and volumes that, certainly at unprecedented levels, but that's, this is year three of saying that, by the way. Um, but we definitely have learned from the
2: past. And functioning pretty well. Friedman said NASDAQ is investing in technology to enhance the role of data and analytics as a competitive advantage.
7: The technologies that I think are really so critical and foundational are cloud, which is why we spent so much time on it. (laughs) Um, It's a data first way to operate an exchange. It unlocks a massive amount of data and intelligence, analytics, and capabilities that allow investors and corporates and everyone to to have a better experience in the markets. Uh,
2: And then back to that earlier discussion we were having, Carl, about is short. Important to note here, NASDAQ making moves in the cloud, but not entirely in the public cloud. I'm not saying they're using Equinix necessarily or anything, but a lot of these companies that are making these moves are doing it in a hybrid way, even where they're using um, public cloud technologies, those configurations that the AWSs, the Azures, the GCPs of the world have figured out, but not keeping them in the public cloud, putting them in their own facilities.
1: Yeah, Chanos actually has been watching today and uh, tweeted to us, LOL, we're not shorting the cloud, D. We are short the legacy (laughs) obsolete brick-and-mortar boxes with declining cash flows at insane valuations, 70 to 90 times declining EPS.
0: I still think that John and Jeff Richards point sticks, though, right, John? What do you think of that? I mean, you're shorting the legacy infrastructure players, but I think your argument, John, was that there's a lot of other companies that are still using public and private, right? It doesn't well, totally yes, go yes. Those,
2: those legacy infrastructure players are saying that they're working hard to transform what they've got in those old brick and mortar facilities. And part of what they're going to have is those transitional technologies that allow hybrid cloud strategies to work. So Jim and others following that short strategy are going to have to be really careful to understand what's beneath yeah. you know, the roof in those old facilities, make sure... They don't get caught on the wrong side of the future.
0: Yeah. It's important to watch us with the volume on, too, right? The banner, there's more to it. So (laughs) maybe he was just reading that. Anyways, guys, uh, there's more layoffs coming in tech as well. We want to hit that, this time at Tesla. Cutting positions for nearly 200 autopilot workers and shuttering its San Mateo office comes after Elon Musk said earlier this month that he had a super bad feeling about the economy and the company needed to cut staff by 10%. That stock is down 40% this year. We will be right back.
2: The crypto contagion's latest victim, while it might not be traditional banks, Leslie Picker explains how investors' lack of crypto conviction is impacting the financial sector. Leslie.
8: Hey, John, you guys have covered this so well. The recent collapse in cryptocurrencies having broad implications across the crypto ecosystem, both Lender Celsius and Hedge Fund Three Arrows have reportedly explored bankruptcy options in recent weeks. But What about the potential systemic risk to the broader financial system? Well, for now, this is the good news. Analysts and Fed officials believe the crypto system, the crypto challenges are contained. In a call with reporters last week tied to stress tests, Fed officials said the banking system has limited exposure to cryptocurrencies. And KPW, in a recent note, said that across its universe of both large and small publicly traded regulated regulated bank stocks, analysts have, quote, found no concerning exposures that would result in anything beyond some lost deposits over time. This stands in contrast, though, to public market investors. They've been a bit more jittery here. Banks Silvergate Capital and Signature Bank have declined 60 percent and more than 40 percent, respectively, year-to-date over their ties to the crypto space. KBW noting, though, that the biggest risk to any banks is deposit outflow as a result of lower crypto prices and contagion risk is extremely limited. So not as concerned about actually holding crypto on the balance sheet and the exposure there, but just the fact that this collapse in prices is really starting to impact the size of their deposit base, guys. Absolutely. Leslie, thanks for that. Look, I think that's a question a lot of folks are wondering at the moment. A
0: lot has to do with leverage, too. And you mentioned Mm -hmm. Celsius. It's been more than two weeks since that crypto company said that it was freezing customer withdrawals, leaving 1.7 million customers without access to their money. Kate Rooney, Here with me at One Market on the latest, and it's kind of like Mt. Gox all over again, but some key differences this time around.
9: Yeah, absolutely. Ten years later, we're seeing some of the same uh, similarities, Dee. We spoke to half a dozen Celsius customers in that situation. You mentioned some invested all of their savings, but they really thought would be retirement money. They first heard that uh, their accounts would be frozen through a blog post back on June 12th. Celsius blamed extreme market conditions and later said the process will take some time. No comment since then. CEO Alex Mashinsky was a key reason investors we spoke to say they trusted the company. He gave weekly YouTube talks describing Celsius as what he called the anti-bank. You'd often see him in a T-shirt saying that banks are not your friends. It seemed uh, here. Take a listen to uh, to one of these customers.
1: It seemed to me like out of all the companies that were paying yield, this one seemed, you know, uh, the the, the most the the safest one, especially the most uh, transparent one. Given that the CEO himself and a lot of uh, high-level employees were on YouTube talking to the community, saying that you know your your, your funds will be safe, you know you know uh, you're not going to lose your crypto.
9: Everyday investors we talked to flocked to Celsius for 18 percent yield they were getting in return for depositing their crypto. The fine print, though, says Celsius is not a bank. Customer deposits are not insured. And that money was lent out to hedge funds and put into some other high yield crypto projects. The structure began to unravel, though, as prices collapsed. Legal experts tell me the company is likely facing bankruptcy as unsecured creditors. Investors will also be collecting pennies on the dollar.
3: Maybe if Bitcoin shoots back up to 60 or something, maybe there's a happy story there. But if we stay with prices around 20, I can't imagine that there's any way that Celsius can, can repay everyone in full.
9: Five state regulators we spoke to are investigating Celsius right now. The only federal regulator mentioned in the fine print is Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. That's the anti-money laundering group, which declined to comment. No mention of the SEC, guys. Carl, back to you.
1: Wow. Uh, so many, so much fallout in such a short period of time, Kate. Thank you, uh, Kate Rooney. As we go to break, uh, take a look at Disney shares today. Yesterday, we mentioned the park reopening in Shanghai gave a small boost to the stock. Now the company announcing they've extended Bob Chapek's contract as CEO for three years, which was set to expire in February. But the stock's down about 27% since he took the job from Iger, uh, basically around levels it was at when they st- uh, closed the parks for COVID. And it is the worst performing Dow stock of the year year. Tech Check is back after this. Time now for a gut check
2: on AMD. Down more than 4% this morning, a bit of an odd one. JPM's trading desk out with a new note this morning saying they're hearing more questions about weakness in the stock, calling the company's positioning a key issue here, adding they see more interest in shorting that stock alongside NVIDIA and Marvell predicting the names investors have been willing to defend in the last few months will be the last shoes to drop. AMD down more than 40% this year, and we'll be back after this.
10: And we are calling it iPhone. On June 29, 2007, the iPhone was born. There they go. They're running into And so was Noah Schmick. Over the next 15 years as the iphone grew and developed so did noah and his dependence on it
8: this is everything you would ever need in the palm of your hands why would you never be off of it that's a clip
2: from the wall street journal's documentary marking the 15th anniversary of the iphone a piece of technology has come a long way since 2007 with countless camera developments the additions of the app store facetime apple pay iPhone, also a key growth driver to the stock, to say the least. Just taking a hit this year. It's down 20%, but that's a lighter hit than everything else, pretty much. And joining us now, the creator of the documentary, The Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stern, Emmy-winning, along with CNBC's Steve Kovac. Joanna, the thing about the iPhone from a business perspective, I think, is that it's arguably become the dominant mainstream computing platform on the planet, not necessarily just from a raw unit number, but from an influence and, and business uh, perspective. And very few people, if any, saw that coming 15 years ago.
10: I love the part about very few people saw that coming because for the documentary, I went back and started talking to a lot of these former and current Apple executives to ask them about those points. Did they know this was going to come, especially around the app store? You introduced this app store. Are you? Do you have any idea the types of apps that are going to come with that? And largely the answer was no. A lot of unintended, unexpected consequences when that iPhone was introduced back in 2007 and then 2008 when the App Store came. And also as you talk about sort of shaking up everything, right? Not only society, but the economy and the industries from it. Uh, I have often said on this show, I'm guilty. Smartphones are boring now. But when you take the 15-year view, we should probably never say that again.
2: Yeah, Steve, Um, there's been a parade for the last decade of people talking about how Apple needs the next iPhone. Samsung was going to take out Apple. Apple needed a TV. Apple needed a car. Apple needed to buy Tesla. Uh, Apparently, Apple didn't need any of that because it's still, uh, you know, the the most valuable technology company. Uh, What do you think that says about the value of the ecosystem and the platforms Apple's built?
11: Yeah, that's, ex- that's exactly right, John. I mean, 10 years ago, everyone was questioning if Apple was doomed because of Samsung putting out these like big screen phones and so forth. Turns out Apple was just fine. And a lot of that is uh, credited to Tim Cook. He really took that iPhone business when he took over in 2011 and, and expanded it like a gazillion fold. He uh, expanded it, um, how many carriers is available, not just in the U.S., but getting huge carriers in China like China Mobile, which had at the time 700 million uh, subscribers, so that just opening it up to these massive markets. And then when sales started to kind of flatten or sales growth started to go down, he found the next level of growth, which was services. All these services Mm -hmm. that we talk about tied to the iPhone, which keeps you locked into that ecosystem. And then... What do you do then if, if services start to slow down? You make the iPhone more expensive and starts charging a thousand bucks or more for the very best iPhones. And that increases revenue. So even though they might not be selling as many individual units per quarter or per, per year, they're making more money on every iPhone sold. And then mm-hmm. on top of that, if you want to look forward and yeah. what their plans are, there's that report that they're going to turn the iPhone into a subscription service. So you get a new iPhone every year and that could spur another level of growth, John
0: so many innovations in. on yeah go ahead Joanna then I got a question and i was for you. just going
10: to add one more thing to steve's great list which is what else do you do you make everything connect to the iphone so you've got the airpods business you've got the watch business all of that spanning from the iphone
0: yeah and potentially payments as well which they're pushing deeper into joanna um I'll never forget when you talk about speaking to people who maybe underestimated what the iPhone could do. RIM and BlackBerry, you know, what used to be a great uh, Canadian company underestimating. What do you think folks now might be underestimating as the next evolution in technology or devices? Some are pointing to the AR or VR headset, Joanna.
10: Yeah, I, I, well, in terms of looking back at RIM and the actual device and the design of the device, I think we can't underestimate Apple's prowess in design, right? The idea there that people thought, uh, no hardware, keyboard, no way, this is not going to work. And yet that is now what every single phone looks like. You can't underestimate Apple with an eye of design. Now, of course, they've lost some big, big key executives in the design area, but we'll see how that carries forward as you're talking about into this AR or mixed reality space whatever that next big thing is, I think as you look to that next big thing, it is likely or it will not, I will not say likely, it will not replace the iPhone. And that was one of the things that Greg Joswiak, who's heads up marketing for Apple, told me in one of the interviews I did in the documentary, which is that the iPhone isn't going anywhere, just like the Mac didn't go anywhere. But when we introduced the next big thing, which he would not tell me about after I pressed him, uh, he just said, well, certainly the iPhone, maybe maybe it will just be another thing in our toolkit, just like the Mac is now.
1: That's interesting. You know, Steve, um, I don't know if you've read uh, Trip Mickle's book uh, called After did, Steve, yeah. basically arguing that with the loss of Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive, that the, the soul, because of their relentless pursuit of simplicity, the likelihood of a new historic product like the iPhone is lessened over, uh, since then. I wonder if you think that's being overly harsh.
11: I don't think it's you can necessarily tie that to, you know, Steve Jobs uh, passing away. I think you tie that to just the limits of the technology. Like, just the technology does not exist yet to replace the iPhone. I know everyone keeps talking about glasses that might look like this one day that just puts everything in front of your face. But I'm telling you, the, the iPhone is just a once-in-a-lifetime gangbuster product. I'd be really shocked if we saw something... That transformative and on that level in my lifetime, again, it's just, you know, we're, t- we're talking about the headset. Again, that's going to be more like an accessory, like the Apple Watch or the AirPods, both very successful and profitable products. But do they replace the iPhone? Absolutely not. People are constantly looking to Apple to, you know, uh, disrupt itself. It did it with the iPod, with the iPhone, and, you know, it, it's, the iPad was supposed to kind of take over the Mac, but it didn't quite do that that expectation is now gone. It's all about the iPhone. Everything Apple does goes back to the iPhone still today.
2: Yeah. A lot of success for a
1: 15-year-old. Steve, Joanna, thank you. Thanks. Carl. Thanks. Uh, Guys, pretty interesting session here. Even though uh, we've been chopping around on stocks, oil has come in uh, despite that inventory draw. Pretty interesting. Some headlines about OPEC plus, maybe a change of mindset. We'll see how much uh, capacity they've got. And then the 10-year 310, a very important level if you look over the the long term. We'll see if it uh, can hold. You've
10: been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.